Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. As you can tell, I have a bit of a cold, so you'll be listening to Sexy Kim, and but everybody else is in uh, ship shape, so here we go. No, no, no. Sexy yeah. Anne, too. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, Sexy Anne. <laughs> okay. Um, so with me are four of my fellow certified story grid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. This week, we're going deep into the dream world with Anne's pitch of Inception as a great example of nested storytelling. This 2010 science fiction heist film, nominated for eight Academy Awards, four of which it won, was written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Anne will be ably assisted on the A-team by Valerie, and Leslie and Jari will be on the B-team. They're going to test the theory by evaluating it separately and from other perspectives, so that in the end, we get a complete 360 view of the story principle, nested, nonlinear story structure. Now, we always try to discuss our movie in a way that lets listeners follow along, even if you haven't seen it yet, you know, or, or seen it lately. But in this case, we really want to encourage you to go watch Inception in full before proceeding with the episode. Why? Well, partly because it's the only way you're going to follow the discussion because the movie is so complex. And so it's really best if you've already seen it. And also, there's a kind of revelation element that we don't want to ruin for you. So... This is a movie where spoilers will really spoil the fun. So we definitely encourage you, you know, hit pause, go watch the film, and then come back and and finish the episode. So here we go. Anne's going to start us off with a quick look at the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to attempt to orient us into this very complex story. Take it away, Anne. Okay. Well, it is very complex. And at one level, I'm going to start with a genre. At one level, it's a straight up crime story in the heist subgenre. This is where professionals team up and execute a complex plan to either defraud or steal from a mark, sometimes for revenge, or as in Ocean's Eleven, there was a revenge motive, or in this case, because they've been hired by a powerful person to do a job that nobody else can do because they're very special professionals. Now, the science fiction in this, the science fiction premise in this movie is so complex that it spends the first 15 minutes on a kind of action prologue. And it's where two main characters are effectively auditioning for the heist to come. This prologue-ish piece in the beginning hook establishes the principal characters, the uh, three of the principal characters, the background of the job and some of the key rules of the science fiction world. So, that it's really important. You could not understand this movie without a lot of setup. So the uh, story math is different. It's definitely not 25-50-25. I didn't actually do the math, but it's long prologue, longish beginning hook, very short ending payoff uh, is, is kind of how it, how it shakes out. So I'm going to argue that the external genre beginning hook doesn't start until minute 16 of the movie. So here's the purely external heist story in brief. And this is interesting because stripping it down like this revealed to me how pure the external global story is. It almost makes perfect sense on paper, as you'll see from my reading my notes, without even touching on the strange dream technology the team uses or on the deep philosophical questions about reality that I think form 
both the movie's enduring fascination and the internal genre, which we'll talk about more later. So the beginning hook of the heist story is when a powerful energy tycoon, whose name is Saito, offers exiled American professional thief Dominic Cobb a way to return legally to the United States, he must agree, that is Cobb, must agree to undertake an impossible reverse theft called Inception, or else accept that he will never see his children back home in America again. He takes the job and assembles his team. The middle build, when Dominic's ex-wife, Maul, begins showing up during the team's rehearsals, and that name is not insignificant here, distracting Dominic, he must find a way to ignore her and carry out the heist or risk failure and permanent exile and also injury or damage to his partners. He pretends there's no problem, but when Maul drags Dominic away at the critical point in the inception, Dominic must break from her or else lose a team member and the mark and fail at the job. He leaves her, the team survives, and the job is successful. Okay, that almost sounds like the ending payoff, right? Now, in the ending payoff, Saito, the uh, energy tycoon who commissioned the job and went on the heist with them, honors his word and uses his worldly power to clear Dominic's name with a single phone call. But when Dominic returns home to the United States and to his home, his experiences have made him question the reality of his own perceptions. He decides to accept the apparent reality and embraces his return to his children. The story ends without definitively answering the question about what is real. So all of these events are happening in the context of scenes where what's real and what's a dream is constantly in question. The purpose of the heist, the inception, is to use this military dream-sharing technology to plant an idea in the mind of the Mark, whose name is Fisher, Robert Fisher, so that when he wakes up from the dream, he will decide, thinking he's deciding on his own, to break up his father's giant conglomerate. This is presumably for the benefit of mankind. That's what Saito sort of hints at. But we're never really sure that it isn't just for the specific benefit of Mr. Saito. But the other story, Dominic Cobb's internal story, is a morality plot. Uh, we're going to get some argument on that later. Revolving around an experiment that he and his wife did deep in the dream state that resulted ultimately in her suicide in the waking world. So her presence in the story is as a dream component, a subconscious projection. And she committed suicide, believing that she was still in a dream and that dying in that dream would wake her up into reality. Dominic blames himself with some reason for this choice on her part and her constant presence in his subconscious mind, which he is not able to control, is the antagonistic force that rules the middle build. His choice at the global climax is to leave Maul, that is her presence in his subconscious mind, deep in the limbo state where the image of her dies. That's the sacrifice he makes in order to rescue Saito, who has been trapped in his own limbo realm. See why you have to watch this one first? Whether this is an altruistic choice on Dominic's part or a selfish one remains ambiguous, because after all, Dominic is depending on Saito to clear his name so that he can return home to his children. So what is his motive? Really, it's ambiguous, like kind of people are in real life sometimes. So is it really a redemption story or does Cobb ultimately decide not to decide and live in the illusion of reality, in which case it's kind of a surrender story? In every sense, the internal genre story is left with an ambiguous ending. Fascinating, wonderful as always. So let's jump in and hear your case, Anne and Valerie, for Inception as a great example of nested nonlinear story structure. 
Okay, well, after watching this movie a few times over the past week, I, I don't know what reality is anymore either because it kept me awake most of the night last night. I'm kind of tired. I'm realizing that I might have better proposed this movie as uh, the story principle of distraction. Uh, not that that's a story principle, but boy, this movie has some of the best and most expensive use of exposition as ammunition that I have ever seen. <laughs> I, I can see where you're coming from, Anne. If you listened to last week's episode, you know that I just spent a week uh, in Los Angeles with Robert McKee. And so I'm going to be talking about him a bit this week because look, I spent a lot of money. We might as all, might as well all benefit from it, right? <laughs> um, what Anne just said, I think is right on the money. McKee says in, uh, on page 343 of story, the dream sequence is exposition in a ball gown. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I know, isn't it great? And that when used, dream sequences are usually feeble efforts to disguise information in Freudian cliches. All right. Ouch. Now here we have a whole story built around dreams. Remember when we did Waking the Divine, at the beginning of the middle hook, Jackie has a dream about Ned and it felt really weak, right? Like maybe this, the writers could have dug a little deeper there. And that was just one scene. But here we've got a whole story built around dreams. Now, really the only question that matters is whether the story works or not. But a lot of the scenes and, and whether it works or not, um, yes, sometimes we can articulate that quantitatively. Other times it's a perception and up to the audience. So a lot of the, the, in inception, a lot of the scenes right up to the midpoint shift are designed to explain the rules of the dream world to the viewer. It establishes the stakes. And the, of course the filmmakers had the benefit of Leonardo DiCaprio and my daughter will watch him in anything. <laughs> they also had uh, Oscar winning special effects, an enormous location shooting budget and they used action movie cliches like a foot chase through the crowded market in Mombasa, Kenya. So all of this exposition is compelling and entertaining. And expensive and fascinating. I loved when they turned the streets of Paris, bent them up and folded them over on themselves. That was incredible. I, mean, I don't care what, was, what they were explaining to me. I was just like, wow, that's really cool. It was eye candy. Yeah, it totally <laughs> was. But it served to explain the rules of the dream world. It was fascinating. Now, the story principle near to my heart, okay, and the reason why I love this movie and I pitched it for this week, is this narrative device of nested stories. And what I found is that this was a concept in my own mind for which there is no hard and fast definition, which is also true of many of the terms that we use. And it's not an official story grid term, there isn't one, but my idea was that the dream within a dream within a dream within a dream, there are four levels, put it into the mind-bending category of what's called a story within a story. The reason I'm interested in this is I'm writing a novel myself with a structure of separate but interwoven stories, not precisely nested, but a similar concept. So I had a personal stake in wanting to study Inception, which I had seen before. Some definitions that I found about nested stories include, for example, the Arabian Nights, and that's where a narrator tells the story of a storyteller telling stories. The framing narrative is that her telling a new story every night is the only thing keeping her alive. That is, there's, there's an external plot, it's kind of a slim external plot that connects all the stories she tells, but the stories themselves that she tells within the frame each stand alone. So when Anne first pitched Inception as an example of nested stories... I asked her to define what she meant by nested stories. 
Because to me, it was exactly what she's just said, a story within a story, and the Princess Bride is what came to my mind. And in that story, it's a novel and a film, both by William Goldman, there we have a grandfather telling his sick grandson the story of the Princess Bride. So that Princess Bride story is mildly affected by the rereading of the story in the book, as the grandson changes his mind about love stories. So this is simply one full story within the slender frame of another. I also wondered whether Inception does in fact have nested stories or were they subplots? As Anne said, we're not dealing with an official story grid term. So really what we call it doesn't really matter. It's the principle that we need to study so that we know whether we want to use it in our own writing. And if we do, how it works. Yeah. And I'm still working on, to me, the term nested stories is very vivid and clear, and I'm going to continue using it, but I'm not going to enforce it on anyone else. Most of the sources I could find defined the term nested story to include the single frame, single interior story framing device like Princess Bride. But the definition I'm most interested in in is the device where several stories within the main story are all connected causally where the, this is the interior stories, I don't want to call them the internal stories, but the stories within the, the external most frame affect each other and have hidden links to each other. Now, I won't say that Inception is exactly that, but the literary masterwork that I'm using for my own writing is uh, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, and it contains kind of a stepped pyramid of six stories joined together by a subtle reincarnation theme. I'll say more about that in the notes, but the stories are not so much nested within each other in time because they're all separated in time, but they're nested within each other in a very clever way that uh, David Mitchell figured out how to do and apparently continues to use in his novels. Anyway, the four dream levels of inception and what happens in them are all causally related. The heist that the team is undertaking is incited by Mr. Saito's offer in the real world. We assume the real world. We never, it's, this movie leaves you wondering what's real. Um, His offer to clear Cobb's name and let him return to his children in the U.S. Once they all go under into the dream state on the Trans-Pacific flight, each level of the dream is intricately bound by the actions and choices of the one above it. So when Yusuf, who is dreaming at the first level, crashes the van a little too early, Arthur, who is in charge of level two, who is awake in level two, quote-unquote, it's really hard to talk about this movie, must take emergency action to protect the dreamers who are still dreaming in level three. And, and on it goes, down and down. It's true that all four stories are in service of the heist itself. And in that sense, this is just a linear crime story, as laid out in the beginning hook, middle build, ending payoff summary I gave. But here's what I've learned as a novelist by studying this movie masterwork. And that's why we're addressing these story principles is what, what can novelists do with them? The first thing I've learned is that a nested structure like this is excellent for conveying complex philosophical or spiritual ideas. In fact, I'm not sure you would use it for any other reason. I'm not sure you should. The structure itself is a metaphor. It's part of the story. So this is probably why great spiritual and philosophical works like um, Plato's Phaedo and the Mahabharata use it. Okay, I'm just going to jump in here for a quick minute, Anne. I'm not sure I'd accuse the Princess Bride of conveying complex philosophical or spiritual (laughs) ideas. (laughs) 
but I do see where you're coming from. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, stop, stop. No, no. Hold on. Princess Bride? You're kidding me. This is the deepest philosophical <laughs> movie we have in the English language canon. Beautiful. It is beautiful. How can you not love that? Oh, I do love the movie. <laughs> I'm just not sure it's really a great work of philosophy. But anyway, here's the thing about nested stories. It is one of the tools in a writer's toolbox, right? So if we do things like this and study examples of it and see how it works or doesn't work, it can become a really powerful tool in our toolbox, but it can be a complete crutch if uh, we're not careful. Like, I guess like any of the tools. Yeah, absolutely. And and I agree. I mean, Princess Bride does not convey deep philosophical or difficult uh philosophical concepts. It doesn't need to. It's I'm I'm referring here to the multiple layers of story. Princess Bride only has one. It has the framing story and then one story within. Same way with Bridges of Madison County. This provides like dramatic irony and uh, some mystery and it's a great device and and it's used all the time and it's wonderful. But what I'm interested in are these multi-layers Tales within tales within tales. And my question is, why complicate your story like that unless the narrative device can serve as a metaphor for levels of reality or of perception or something equally deep? So this is what I was thinking of when I decided that the second thing a novelist can learn from studying this device or tool is that it seems to require this clear, overarching external story within which to explore those deep philosophical waters. Otherwise, just write a think piece about the deep philosophical waters, right? If you want to put those ideas in a story, you need the clear overarching plot. And then you can think about using these nested stories. And stories don't get much more external than a crime heist type of genre, because it provides this intense narrative drive with a ticking clock and high stakes. And boy, does this movie have a great ticking clock. The third reason I found to study this form is... These are stories that fascinate the reader or the viewer and endure in their minds. You look up Inception on the internet and people are still talking about it, trying to figure it out, designing charts and graphs about it is fascinating. I'll link to some of them. They're stories that support multiple readings and viewings and each time more layers and details emerge. So I've watched Inception, I think, five times altogether now, and I still feel like I'm just beginning to get a handle on it all, and I'm not one bit tired of it yet. Although I will say the fifth time I started to get a little tired of the middle build, that always happens in middle builds. Finally, and by no means the least of the reasons, is that even if you have no plans of writing in this realm, in this using this tool, it's an amazing training exercise to step back from the cool effects and the mind-boggling big ideas and learn to see the tropes and conventions and even the cliches at work that made this weird-ass movie totally recognizable as popular entertainment. There's a good Wikipedia article on nested stories that lists tons of interesting examples in film and literature, including Inception. And there's another worthwhile article that I found on Tor.com where the author, Brad Kane, places framing devices and nested stories together in a continuum, which makes sense because they're related. And after listing a number of examples from literature, he also finds some in television, which was kind of fun. He says this about the peculiar narrative drive properties of this story type. Here, here we go. Why do these framing devices work so well? Perhaps it has to do with a simple idea of suspension of disbelief. As readers and viewers, we have to suspend our knowledge that fiction is fake when we read a book or see a movie. That's how we're able to get into the experience. But when we experience a story within a story, 
within a story. That transition is more natural. So we're already, we're being trained to, to let go of, you know, to suspend disbelief. It's as if once we make that first leap of the imagination, we get more easily swept away with each new layer. And when it all ends, we find ourselves back in the first frame, often surprised to remember where it all began. And Inception does this beautifully. That moment can be powerful, and it speaks to the intoxicating power of a well-told story. Perhaps that's why framing devices have been around for as long as stories themselves. Okay, so as I already mentioned, I was in L.A. with Robert McKee all week, so I have to give credit where credit is due. I was not working with Anne this week, so she pulled all of that together, so woohoo! Good job, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, you checked in a number of times in circumstances that I personally would never have checked back in. So congratulations. It's a bit mind-numbing. I, I will say that. It's it's um, not for the faint of heart, <laughs> these Robert McGee seminars. All right. So what I decided to look at with respect to Inception is why would a writer choose this style? What does it add to a story and what does it take away? Okay. So the bottom line, as it always is, of course, is... You would only use this device or any device if it helps to move your story forward, right? But of course, we can't just leave it there because that's not particularly helpful. What we're trying to do is figure out how it moves the story forward and how does it create narrative drive. We've talked about narrative drive on a couple of episodes already, and definitely we're going to be talking about this more because I'm fascinated. So I think for the most part, Inception uses suspense. So by that, I mean, we know what Cobb knows. Now, that's not 100% true. All, you know, it's not true all the time. And a great example is the opening sequence where we have, in my opinion, an instance of dramatic irony. So when Anne and I were talking about this via text <laughs> all, all the week, she made a really great point. And here's what she said. Quote, I think we could argue whether that prologue-ish opening puts us in dramatic irony or mystery. We may know a kind of future, but it seems that Cobb at least knows it too. And he knows what it means, whereas we don't have a clue. That even rhymes. That was pretty clever of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jacoby that day, Anne. <laughs> um, so, all right, a really quick review of what we mean by narrative drive. There are three ways to drive a narrative. That is suspense, dramatic irony, and mystery. Suspense is when the audience or the reader and the protagonist have the same amount of information. Dramatic irony is when the audience knows more than the protagonist. And mystery is when the protagonist knows more than the audience. So that's on the level of information. But there's another difference between these three. And McKee goes into it in story, uh, but he talked more about it in um, the Genre Week seminar that I just sat through 12 hours a day. Here's what he had to say. Yes, they differ on the amount of information the audience has relative to the protagonist, but they also differ depending on the impact that they have on the reader, the, the emotional response that the reader has to the story. So mystery creates a sense of sympathy for the protagonist, but not much empathy. And to understand that, think about the master detectives. We sympathize with Sherlock Holmes or Poirot when they have all the clues in front of them, but they haven't been able to connect them yet. 
But it's really hard to empathize with someone who's at that level of genius because most of us are just not operating on that level of genius. So we don't have an emotional connection to those characters. Suspense, where the audience and the protagonist have the same amount of information, creates a high degree of empathy. But it also creates curiosity about how the story is going to end. Now, when we flip over to dramatic irony, which is when the audience knows more than the protagonist, we're not wondering how it's going to end anymore. So that curiosity, the quality of the curiosity changes from wondering how the story will end to wondering how and why the character did what they did. Dramatic irony creates a feeling of dread in the audience because we know the future or the fate of the protagonist. We know where he's heading. When you're going to use dramatic irony, it's essential to have a compelling protagonist because if you don't, and the audience knows how the story ends, they're going to tune out. You're going to lose them. What was anxiety in suspense becomes compassion in dramatic irony. Wow. Thank you for sharing that gold with us. That is fascinating and fantastic, Valerie. That's wonderful. (laughs) I I just want to add one quick thing here, and that is sort of the meta narrative drive of this story structure, which is also true in a lot of literary fiction and mini plot fiction, which is as you're watching or reading, you're wondering, you have, there's a mystery as to how all these pieces are connected and what's really going on. There's that intrigue of mystery there in just the way the story is structured. And I think that's a big part of Inception. So interestingly, I thought of an example of this uh, nested storytelling that's a children's book. It's called Charlie Cook's Favorite Book, and it's by Julia Donaldson, and it's one of our favorites um, in my house. And so Charlie Cook starts out reading a book, Charlie Cook's Favorite Book, and he reads a book about, you know, someone. um, And in that, they read a book about some, you know, it's like it's every character is always reading a book or has a book about the next character in the story. And then it goes all the way around full circle and comes back to Charlie Cook. And it's a lot of fun. So anyway, just another fun example of that this awesome principle can be applied to any type of storytelling. So we're going to hop over to the B team now and Jari and Leslie are going to take a look at this proposition from other points of view and let us know what you think about it. Go ahead, Jari. Thanks, Kim. Excellent arguments from Anne and Valerie. To me, this is a linear story that has multiple frames that are nested. And that beginning part is, to me, just a flashback. So I don't think there's any real nonlinear storytelling going on. I just think the flashback at the beginning sort of sets up the rest of it. And it is a very complicated story to follow since it's got four levels of nested loops or nested frames. And if this was in an engineering or coding world, you'd go crazy trying to debug this one, which I sort of did. But what we can say is as a framing story, this is a good example, although it does have four different frames. It is important that we kind of step back and figure out, okay, well, how, you know, how does all this, this framing stuff work? And Leslie's going to talk a little bit more about the how, or I'm going to talk a little bit more about, or what this thing Inception is and how we can learn from it. Now, as Valerie and Anne mentioned, it is really tough to do this right. And one of the reasons why Inception is so confusing is because each one of the frames or nests does cook back to the other one. Whereas, you know, when we talked about in the Jane Eyre episode, you know, I had like kind of a guideline or my rule where 
if you can pull the frame out of the other frame, then it really is a framing story and it should be its own story and you don't have to worry about any connections. Unfortunately, this does make it a little squishy for this because there are some hooks, a thread that goes all the way back up to, to reality. And as Anne mentioned, you don't even know if you're in reality. That's how confusing this thing can be. So while I agree with Anne that this external genre is a crime heist, and again, we talked about a heist being a professional and a caper being a non-professional, I don't think that's what drives the story. I really think this the internal genre and Dom's internal genre is what really drives the story. And, and I think this is a worldview education internal genre simply because it does hit all the obligatory scenes and conventions of a worldview education internal genre. And, and I won't go through all of them. Um, they'll, they'll be in the, sh- in the show notes. But as we always say, just because it adheres to the conventions and obligatory scenes doesn't necessarily mean that it is that is what it is. And so, you know, as anything, this is up for debate. But the thing that I think is a great tool, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it was Valerie who mentioned this before about Stephen Pressfield's intros and outros. And so that's what I use to sort of look to see, hey, is this really like what I think it is? And and I really like that because uh, like anything, the, the intro or the intro scene should set up the outro scene. So the beginning and the end should tie together. For the record, that was Leslie. That was Leslie. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Leslie. Um, it, so yeah, so Leslie's beautiful uh, intro and outro um, discussion. So that's what I wanted to apply to this particular story. And I think the reason why it's worldview education is because when you look at the first scene, and you look at what's going on. I mean, Dom is essentially on this beach and he sees his kids. Now, of course, there's some other things going on. But really, the main thing that we start to get out of this is like, oh, what's up with the kids? So he has a yearning. We don't know what the kids represent because we don't know kind of what kind of where we and we don't find out till later. But he is yearning to get back to his kids. So whatever he did to be away from his kids is something that he needs to, to figure out or, and so that is an important piece of this whole thing. And that's, that's what's driving Dom. Dom is, I mean, yeah, he may or may not be driven by money, but he's not altruistic. He just like, I want to get back to my kids. That's set up in the beginning. And then the outro scene is he's reunited with his kids. Now, what's interesting is that each one of the, I don't know, the dreamers or the, the, what do they call them? The dream architects? I don't know, whatever they call them, has a totem. This totem is something that they use to figure out if they're dreaming or in reality. And the perfect ending to this movie, which I'm just so glad they did because it leaves you a little bit in suspense, is Dom spins his top, which used to be his wife, Mal's. And then instead of waiting for it to either continue to spin or fall down, which he knows he's in reality, he doesn't care. Even if he's in the dream state, he's with his kids. So that shows he has learned, he's, he's gained knowledge that it doesn't matter if he's dreaming or he's in reality, he got what he wanted. He potentially loses the real world, but he doesn't care because he gains his kids or at least he gains his interacting of his kids so that he can feel better. And, you know, throughout the whole movie, he's, I mean, he's conflict, he's driven by the mistake he made with his wife 
And he just wants to get back to his kids. And he's going to do everything he can to do that. And that's all internally driven. Everything he does is internally driven. In the end, he learns that even if he can't be in reality, at least he's with his kids. And that's exactly what he wanted. So that's sort of my take. And I'm sure we'll fight a little bit more about it. But I really like Leslie, <laughs> the intro and outro thing that, that Stephen Pressfield came up with. Because I really do think that that helps figure this all out. Okay, so I'm going to talk about how to pull off something like this. Well, or a, a way to get started, at least. The the important thing to understand about nested stories is, there, is that there are different types of them. You do have the typical framing story, like The Princess Bride, like The Great Gatsby, where you have one story within another story. And then you have stories like Inception or Cloud Atlas or another one from David Mitchell, Ghostwritten, where you have more than two levels of story that are connected. There's also fractal fiction, which is several instances of multiple story levels. Doesn't bear thinking about really, but the never ending story, <laughs> interestingly enough, is an example of that. And then, of course, from a story within a story into a separate story or what we call spin offs are another type of nested stories. And Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is a great example of jumping off from the Harry Potter series. So now that you understand how these the variety of nested stories, how do you put them together? Obviously, you can't just put the elements together willy-nilly, but the mechanics of putting that together can be pretty easily solved by using Orson Scott Card's mice quotient. That's M-I-C-E. So on a basic level, the mice quotient helps you answer the question, what kind of story am I writing? But, you know, in the story grid universe, that question could be referring to any number of topics, including the content genre, the structure genre, the time genre, reality style, but we might mean these four factors that Orson Scott Card identifies in his mice quotient, and that those are milieu, idea, character, and event. Milieu stories, pardon my pronunciation of that. <laughs> pardon my French, is that what you're saying there? <laughs> <laughs> pardon my poor French I should, pronunciation, I should say. Milieu stories are related to the setting. So, for example, The Lord of the Rings begins in the Shire and ends in the Shire and goes a lot of places in between. Idea stories explore a question to be answered or a problem to be solved. For example, Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James. We want to know who killed Captain Denny. Character stories relate to a character who needs to change in some way. For example, Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird needs to understand that the world is not as simple as she believed it to be at one time. And then event stories deal with the attempt to restore balance to the world after things have been upset. And a good example of this is Master and Commander, where you have a French ship going around doing all kinds of nasty business, and Captain Jack Aubrey needs to go settle things. 
Okay, so these factors, as you can probably imagine, appear in most stories, right? We have a setting. We have questions to be answered. We have characters who are changing in most stories. And we certainly have story events. And we can see them all in an inception. But one of these factors takes center stage in the story. So it's really similar in that way to the global genre and really ought to be related to the global genre. So like so many elements of story, these factors can affect the other elements of story. I don't have time to get into all of that right now and would probably put you to sleep. But just know that certain factors go better with certain genres, certain point of view choices, narrative devices, etc. Okay, so I want to talk about how we could use this in looking at Inception. The way that the mice quotient works within a story is that you have the first, the primary, we could say the, the global factor that is like a box that's opened first, right? And then within that box, there might be other boxes, but we treat it like nested code. In other words, we follow a last in, first out progression. So in Inception, the first factor that arises in my mind is that Cobb wakes up on the beach, sees children, but not their faces. There's something odd about that. Then when he goes before Saito, Saito says, I knew a man possessed of some radical notions. So this to me is screaming character, which I think is the internal genre, which is global. Now, I disagree with the assessment that it's worldview education because Cobb doesn't only change the way he sees the world, but he makes an active sacrifice. So I would identify this as a redemption story. But either way, I think the opening factor is related to his character. So within the box of character is an idea slash problem factor. He's trying to steal a a secret from Saito. Now that's immediately resolved when they abandon the job unsuccessful. So that's that box is opened and then closed. The next box to be opened within the bigger box is an idea problem, which is the heist. Saito offers Cobb a job planting the idea in the mind of the heir to a huge, powerful multinational corporation. And he offers the incentive that he'll help Cobb get home to his friends. So you can see how it's connected to the character story, but it's a different factor. It is a problem to solve. So this isn't resolved until much later in the story. But within that box, we have several box, which is they have to complete the team and make a plan, which they do. And then you have the milieu levels of the the levels of dreaming, where the team goes into level one, and then level two, and then level three. And there are events throughout, but where all those boxes are open within the the bigger box of the heist and the even bigger box of the character. And in the show notes, I'll show you exactly how that progression opens up and resolves. But you'll see that the heist is resolved before the character is resolved. And so that's the way that ins and outs work that Stephen Pressfield talks about, is that the first box you open is the last box you shut. 
Now, what if you're not writing a complicated nested story like Inception? Can you still use the mice quotient? Is this at all relevant to you? Absolutely, because it can help you sort out your own subplots and and show you when to open them and when to close them in the proper order. For example, in Pride and Prejudice, you could track the main love story between Elizabeth and Darcy, but also the subplots relating to Jane and Bingley, Lydia and Wickham, and even Charlotte and Mr. Collins. So the mice quotient is a powerful tool that I hope you'll experiment with and uh, will help you tell better stories. That was excellent, Leslie. Thank you. Since I can see the show notes now, I'm loving this diagram that you have here, the notes, the way you break it it down. So I encourage um, listeners, once you've watched the film, to definitely check out these show notes. It was interesting listening and and taking all this in that I – I know from last week's episode when we did Jane Eyre, and I really got a clear understanding at that time of the difference between, you know, a framing story of like that story within a story kind of device versus that nonlinear of let's pull something out of the resolution or the dark night of the soul or whatever and pull that to the front of the story. So I'm really tracking with what Jari was saying about how this feels like they just they pull this section from, you know, the ending payoff of when Cobb wakes up on the beach to save Sato at the end and pulls that to the beginning of the story. And then we go back and we get the rest of this linearly, even though we are going into levels of dreams. But yeah, that those are not like completed stories. They're just levels of dream. So those are interesting differences to think about. Yeah. And I'm still, I think I'm going to have to process this one a little bit longer and maybe go watch the movie one more time. But Anne, why don't you take us out with any final thoughts that you have on this? Well, I think we all, those of us who can, who like the movie probably need to still watch it a few more times. I know I'm going to. I had forgotten the mice quotient. Leslie, thank you for that reminder. That's a really excellent tool. I just want to say that I sat up half the night last night. I mean, literally half the night, wondering whether this story's global genre is crime heist or the internal genre. And in my sleepy-headed conclusion uh, today, it's that they're pretty equally balanced. Leslie makes a great case for really the outermost box being Dominic Cobb's internal genre. And I think I tend to agree, but I think they're so closely balanced that your sense of which one is more important is going to be entirely personal and subjective. I do, along with Leslie, disagree with Jari about the worldview genre. Sorry, Jari. You made a good case for it, but I do agree that it's morality redemption. And I pulled this thing out of Norman Friedman in Forms of the Plot. And here's what he has to say about this plot type. He calls it a reform plot, and it's one of his plots of character. He says, the protagonist's thought is sufficient from the beginning. They're doing wrong and they know it, but their weakness of will causes them to fall away from what they know to be the just and proper path, which is exactly what we see Dominic Cobb doing. He's, he's weak at the beginning. He's not stupid. He's sophisticated and smart and successful and apparently kind of rich and all that sort of thing. But he is weak with relation to his dead wife, subconscious projection, ghost person. So faced with the problem of either revealing their weakness to others or concealing it under a mask of virtue and respectability, they choose the latter course at the outset. And this is exactly what Dom does. The problem then becomes one of devising the means of making them choose the alternative course. We've been led to admire this protagonist at the beginning. Like I say, Cobb seems like an admirable guy on many external levels. But we begin to feel impatience and irritation when we begin to see through the mask, as Ariadne does. We haven't talked much about Ariadne, but she's the architect character. She's young. 
She's the youngest character, the only female character in the story, and she sees through him immediately. Then we begin to feel indignation when this protagonist, this weak protagonist, continues to deceive others, and finally satisfaction when they make the proper choice at last, as Cobb finally does by letting Maul go and effectively letting her die in limbo and die finally from his mind. The reform protagonist doesn't suffer under a mistaken view of things, which is the basis of the worldview story type, but knows the truth and chooses to disregard it. So I think that this is a very, very strong case for Inception's uh, internal and possibly global genre being morality redemption, because he does make the sacrifice at the end. Finally, just before we go, I wanted to acknowledge what one Amazon one-star reviewer says. The plot of this film is way too complex for its own good. It's as if the writers tried to combine The Matrix with a bank heist film and ended up with a long, drawn-out gunfight with odd scenery. I loved that. The 8.7 IMDb rating and the Oscar screenplay nomination suggest that Inception had enough narrative drive and satisfaction to overcome that obstacle for a lot of people, uh, viewers and story professionals alike. But I think it's a fair point to make. If you want to write a complex nested story in support of a deep idea that might only be able to come across in metaphor, you won't be writing a story for everyone. But then, you know, there's no such thing as a universally appealing story. So as our Canadian colleague Valerie would say, fill your boots. Did I do that right, Valerie? <laughs> yeah, not bad, and not bad. Fill your boots. Yeah. <laughs> So write what you want to write and make it the very best story that you can. Absolutely. So has our analysis of Inception helped you better understand nested, nonlinear story structure? Have you analyzed a story using this tool? And if so, how did you handle it? Is there a story or film that you think would be an excellent example of nested, nonlinear story structure? Let us know, as always, on Twitter at StoryGridRT. So to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from an event that Valerie attended, the Night of the Writing Dead, um, which was in Pittsburgh in October and is put on by our fellow StoryGrid editor, Jay Thorne. So Valerie brought this as an example of a question that she was getting quite often. Leslie's going to go ahead and read the question for us and then give us uh, her amazing answer. So our question for today is, what makes the five commandments the five commandments? In other words, what makes an inciting incident an inciting incident, etc.? Well, the five commandments of storytelling are distilled from basic dramatic structure handed down from Aristotle and refined by people like Gustav Freytag and Sean Coyne. Sean also made the connection to the Kubler-Ross change curve, which describes the steps people move through when they experience grief related to change. But what does that really mean? It means that Stories are about change, and the five commandments provide a structure that describes how we process or metabolize that change. So what does that look like? Generally speaking, the protagonist is minding their own business, living life, when an inciting incident comes along and upsets the balance. The inciting incident creates a desire and goal that arise within the mind of the protagonist. Now, as they pursue the goal, obstacles and tools arise from the environment, which we call progressive complications. An unexpected event or the turning point progressive complication occurs, forcing the protagonist into a dilemma, which we call the crisis question. 
The protagonist decides what to do about the dilemma and then acts on that decision in the climax, and consequences flow from there in the resolution. Now, of course, there's a lot more to say about these tools. And at the end of season three, we've planned another StoryGrid 101 episode in which we'll break down the five commandments. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much for bringing that question, Valerie. And thank you, Leslie, for answering it. If you have a question about nested nonlinear story structure or any other story principle, again, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on editor roundtable podcast and leaving us a voice message. We would love to include your voice here on the show. So that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion as always. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Inception. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to incorporate nested nonlinear story structure into your own stories. And we also hope that you will check out the links and additional materials in the show notes. And if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or want to know more about what we do, you can visit storygrid.com slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. So next week, join us to find out whether Leslie can make the case that the King's Speech is a great example of emotional stakes. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. 